0: Okay, we are moving through our study in the book of Acts, so take a Bible, and I will give you the page reference, chapter 9 of Acts. Isn't this a good place to be Saturday morning, opening the Word of God, trying to learn more about God's will for our lives? Today we're going to see one of the most amazing stories. In the whole of Scripture, we're going to talk about how a man called Saul became a great leader of the church. An arch enemy of the church became one of its greatest leaders. So we're on page 1706, Acts chapter 9. Let us pray. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we do... Uh, Deem it a privilege, Lord, to be worshiping with you this Sabbath morning. Bless your people throughout the world, wherever they are. And be with us this morning as we open your word and as we see this amazing story, this miraculous conversion. Every conversion is miraculous, Lord, and I pray that each one of us will be born again and know you personally. So bless our worship service in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember the the man Saul? In fact, somebody asked me a question a few weeks ago when I first mentioned his name. You use the name Saul, you use the name Paul. And I could use any one of those because we're talking about the same person. But we're talking about this man Saul who is mentioned in the early verses. Let me just uh, take my Bible Acts chapter 9, and we see that this man has been looking at Stephen and listening to Stephen in Acts chapters uh, 6 and 7, I think it was, and seen this man's face shining, heard his message on the Lord Jesus Christ, could not refute Stephen. Now, there are not many people who have ever been born into, into the church who have had a better brain than Paul. But before, before Paul was converted, he could not refute Stephen's message. And so, rather than because they could not refute his message, then they persecuted the man. And as they stoned Stephen to death, they lo- laid their cloaks... At the feet of Paul Paul or Saul was obviously giving his okay to this execution and because of Stephen's testimony and because Stephen's face shone and he saw Christ on the right hand of God Paul could never get that out of his head and God used the death of Stephen To bring Saul to conversion. So in Acts chapter 9, it starts by saying, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. This man was absolutely fanatical in persecuting anyone who would use the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he, if he found any there who belonged to the way, that was one of the names of Christianity. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. So early Christians belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now you imagine the sin of this man. There's not a person in this room that has the blood on their hands that Saul had. And yet see what God can do in a few minutes as we continue to transform this man from a rabid enemy of the church to its greatest champion. Let's not one of us give up on people who are up to their neck in sin. Because that is clearly the background of Saul, blood on his hands, Christian men and women thrown into prison, executed, maybe tortured, and what would happen to their children, do the children die, are they fostered away, it was pretty, pretty bad. He's causing havoc in the church. Damascus, strategically important city. Um, in my notes here, it said it was the hub of a vast commercial network with far flung lines of caravan trade reaching into northern Syria, Mesopotamia, Anatolia, Persia, and Arabia. If the new way of Christianity flourished in Damascus, it would quickly reach all of these places. From the viewpoint of the Sanhedrin and of Saul, the arch persecuted, it had to be stopped. Christianity had to be stopped in Damascus. I've been to Damascus. It's one of the oldest cities, if not the oldest, in continually inhabited cities in the whole world. It has a vast, rich history. And you can literally get on that street called Straight Still. And they have a bazaar there. You can walk. Uh, somewhere along that route, Paul was, or Saul was. And um, I had a great time in Damascus. And in a roundabout way, Paul is going to have a great time too. Because God is going to change his life. He's going to turn this man upside down. Uh, Karen came up with a title for this sermon, From Saul to Paul, From Enemy of the Church to Champion of the Church going to happen on this road going into Damascus. So as they neared Damascus on his journey, verse 3, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now there's been all sorts of uh, suggestions what this light would be. But the Scriptures clearly teach us. There's three accounts that we have of Paul's or Saul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. So if we miss something in his story this morning, we can always get it later in chapter 22 and chapter 26. And then, of course, you have to ask the question, why would Luke give us three versions of this man's conversion? Well, this man is going to be a very, very important man for spreading Christianity. Half of your New Testament was written by this man. I was telling my class this morning that I was on the phone last night with a a gentleman uh, asking questions about the Seventh-day Adventist church. And very soon as we got into our conversation, I I could see the way that he was interpreting uh, Paul's writings was very different than the way that I, I would do that. Paul looms very large in Christianity. So for whatever reason we have three accounts of his conversion. This is obviously important. I did preach on this uh, last July and I was tempted to skip over it but I thought no it's too important to jump over again this time. So this bright light which is an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ um, is appearing to this man, Saul. So a light from heaven flashed around him, verse 3, and he fell to the ground, verse 4, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now this voice in some of the other accounts we have is in Aramaic. This is the language that, that, that Saul would understand. And notice that the persecution is directed against who? Who? Jesus, but Jesus is in heaven. No one can persecute Jesus in heaven, can they? He's safe there. Do you remember in Revelation 12 where it talks of the man-child is whisked off to heaven? Safe from the dragon. But of course, what it's saying here is that when we touch the apple of His eye, which is the believer, the one who trusts in Jesus, then we touch Jesus. When we persecute Christians, we persecute the Christian's Lord, the head of the body of the church. So Jesus says, Why have you thought it through, Saul? Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, can you imagine... The fear in this man's heart, the confusion, the bright light being shaken down to the ground, this supernatural voice speaking to you, we believe that Saul saw the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the face of the Lord Jesus Christ was never effaced from his memory. And then we think about what did Saul know about Jesus? Now, we, know, we don't know that they ever met before this occasion here. We have no, at least no evidence of that. But Saul must have heard about Jesus, right? What Jesus did was not done in a corner. A lot of his ministry, a part of his ministry, a very important part of his ministry, was in Jerusalem. Saul would have at least known about Jesus' ministry from other Christians, from somebody like Stephen, for example, gave a very good overview of God's purposes and, and mentioned the Lord Jesus Christ. But now they're meeting. But this Jesus is supposed to be dead. Was He dead? No, He rose from the dead, this is the risen Christ, the heavenly Christ. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Saul thought he would enter Damascus, triumphant, gather the prisoners together, go back to Jerusalem, and have these people tried and probably executed. And now here he is. Blind. We know from some of the other accounts. It says in verse 8 here actually that he opened his eyes. He couldn't see. So now he's blind. Somebody has to take him like a child by the hand. And that's the way he enters Damascus. You know the Lord has to Confront us with our sin before He can ever save us. All of us have sinned. Is there anyone in this room this morning who's never committed sin? Can you walk through those sanctuary doors and say, I'm perfect, I'm righteous, I'm innocent, I've never made a mistake, I've never broken one of God's commandments. There's not a one of us that can do that. Paul says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when God is saving a person, He will often confront them with their sin. Not necessarily in the way He's doing it here, but in some way, shape, or form. God will do that. After all, why should anyone embrace Jesus as a Savior from sin? if we don't feel that we are sinners. If we don't feel that we are sinners, then there's a good chance if we die like that, then of course we would never ever be saved. So here we're confronted, Paul is, or Saul is confronted with this, his sin, his sin of persecution. The men traveling uh, with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound But they didn't see anyone. So they didn't see Jesus. Probably didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. So first God convicts us with our sin. And when we are convicted with our sin and we say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then we're ready for conversion. Some think that Paul got converted right here in verse 5. But it doesn't quite say that, does it? Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up, go into the city. For three days, this man is thinking this through, trying to understand, rehearsing all of the prophecies probably remembering in detail what Stephen had said, and then having this awful feeling that he was responsible for the death of Stephen and plotting the death of many, many others. It's not a fun thing to go through this process of Understanding how awful our sin is. I remember when I first came to Christ, uh, I didn't go through an experience quite like this, but I had this inward feeling of need. This feeling of of the need of Christ, but not even understanding who Christ was or who who God was. And in His own amazing way, God was able to bring me to Himself. And there was a period of time of of remembering some of the awful things that I'd done. And it's very important that those of you who who are very sensitive to the sins that you have committed to realize that they have to be laid at the foot of Jesus Christ and they have to stay there. You can't be rehearsing these things through your Christian life. You've asked God to forgive you of your sins, right? Are we clear on that? Yeah, you've asked God to forgive you your sins. When the devil tries to get you to, um, to rehearse those sins in your mind, then remind him that they're covered with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But three days here without eating or drinking, focusing trying to figure out what on earth is going on in his life. Whole process of repentance, sorrow for sin, conviction of sin, remorse, and so on, would have gone on in those three days. So we see something of Paul's conviction of sin something of his conversion. Now, Luke, very early in this account by verse 10, brings in the role of the church. This is very, very important. Again, if I try and relate it to my own experience, I'm led to Christ through studying the Word of God. The Holy Spirit was my teacher. He was the one who led me to Christ and and I was converted. And once I was converted, then I felt the need for fellowship. This is something that everyone will feel who is truly in Christ. Because whether you know it or not, you've been brought into a family. Now Saul's not aware of that at this point, and I certainly was not aware of that. But the family is the church of God. And this family of God, this way is actually going to be called the church at the end at the end of the chapter and a representative of the church Ananias now have we heard that name before in the book of acts Ananias heard of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 this is a different Ananias So Ananias here a disciple it just says The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. It's kind of interesting that it mentions the names Ananias and Judas. Two people that really failed uh, in Scripture. So there's hope here. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. That's a good thing, isn't it? If you're led to the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll develop a prayer life. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, let's get real here. I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Do you really want me to put my neck in the noose? But well, the Lord said to Ananias, Go! This man is my chosen instrument. When did God choose him? It doesn't tell you in this verse, but when did God choose Before he was born. Don't anyone tell you that salvation is not a miraculous thing? God has a plan. God has a purpose. Much of His plan and purpose we don't understand. Yes, we know He wants all people to be saved. But the way that He does that is absolutely mind-boggling and amazing. The greatest thing in the world is when somebody is converted to Christ. Because we are dead. We are blind in sin. And here we have this highly educated religious man, Saul, who was clueless. Clueless about the heart of God. And God had to turn him inside out, upside down, and bring him to the Lord Jesus Christ. Go, this man is My chosen instrument to carry My name before the Gentiles and their kings, and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for My name. And this man, as we go through the book of Acts, He's going to be a very large figure, not quite from this point on. We're still going to have uh, some more information on Peter's ministry. But very soon, uh, by the time we get to Acts chapter 12, is it? Um, Or certainly chapter 13. Then Paul is the main focus of the rest of the book of Acts. So in the early section of Acts, it's Peter... Later in the book of Acts, it is Paul. And we will see a lot about the suffering of Paul. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may, be, may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that Ananias says brother Saul. Now before he went on his journey with his knees knocking all the way he wasn't thinking brother Saul. But somehow some way as he stepped out in faith the Lord had spoken, what are we supposed to do when the Lord tells us to do something, the safest thing to do is to do it, right? And faith is strengthened as we do what God has asked us to do. So I I don't doubt for a minute that this, this man had a lot of apprehension in his heart. His knees were knocking and so on and so forth. But by the time he got into the presence of Saul, he's calling him brother. Saul needed to have that affirmation. Because when you're an archenemy of the church, it's not like the church just opens its arms and embraces you. It's not quite as simple. Human nature is not quite like that. But Ananias is, is in a sense, hand, uh, holding out the hand of fellowship here. And he actually lays his hands. This is something typical of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the importance of touch. I don't fully understand all of that, but it's very important that uh, we affirm people in whatever way we can. And Ananias went to the house, entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, aren't we filled with the Holy Spirit when we believe in Jesus Christ? I tend to look on this here as as what some would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Saul is being anointed with the Holy Spirit for ministry. Just as Jesus was at his baptism. Uh, Jesus had the Holy Spirit before his baptism. At his baptism, he had a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. Possibly that is what is happening to, to Saul here. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. Now he's praising God. People who who receive their sight, hopefully the first thing they do is thank God. He got up, and what happened to him? He was baptized. Why was he baptized? Because a person that, that knows that their sins are forgiven and comes to the Lord Jesus Christ the next thing that God will tell you to do is to get baptized. For me, it took a a trip to the church months and months after conversion doing correspondence lessons. I'm sure baptism was part of that. And then, I believe I I did the section on baptism after I had at least visited the church. I think I'd been baptized when I filled some of those lessons in. But anyway... Um, when I saw people being baptized the very first time I visited an Adventist church, the Spirit of God says, you need to get baptized. Now I was saved. I was filled with the Holy Ghost. But that didn't mean to say, in fact, that is, that is the recipe for getting baptized. You believe in Jesus. You're filled with His Holy Spirit. You're converted. So the logical thing is to get baptized and join the family of God so anyway he gets baptized now was that a little bit of sprinkling on the side a little bit behind the ear what was it it was a genuine dunk so actually here's our baptistry we take the flowers off we take the top off this and we actually have like a a tank here and George has been bugging me to baptize him. Praise God, that's the Holy Spirit. Hopefully, George. So we're working towards that. And, and, and don't be surprised when you get baptized, at least this is what's happened to me, that God zapped me again. Why? Because you're starting your public ministry, not, not as a pastor, but as a Christian. And God expects you to witness for Him. God expects you to live for Him. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to do any of that. can't be living this and teaching this and witnessing in our own strength. It just doesn't work that way. And after he, he, uh, And after the baptism, he took some food and regained his strength. So now, Saul, convicted with his sin, converted, is now brought into the church. God doesn't bypass the church. He has set up the church for a reason. And I've met people over the years who have been really reluctant to get baptized. And and if ever there was an age when people are anti-church, anti-denomination, it is today. But this is all the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is convicting of sin. The Spirit is converting. The Spirit is bringing or introducing Saul to the importance of the church. The church that he was persecuting just a short time before. He's now going to become one of the great leaders. So he spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. That must have been interesting. We're not told much about it. Probably a lot to learn in those few days. And at once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, it's very important to realize, and I think we've seen some other examples already in the book of Acts in chapter 2 and other places, that when a person is baptized or anointed, whatever term we want to use, in the Holy Spirit, The the natural response is to witness and to share. And as far as Paul is concerned, Saul, it is preaching and teaching. So this is the beginning of his preaching and teaching ministry. And they're still allowed to, to be in the synagogues at this point. So that's where he starts. And what does he preach? That Jesus is the Son of God. He's not dead. He's not a criminal who hung on a tree and dead, left in a tomb, or someone stole his body. He is the living Son of God, and I have seen him. I've actually seen him, Paul says, on this road to Damascus. And I've heard him. We've met together. All those who heard him were astonished, wouldn't you be? And asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name. And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? It's amazing how everybody seems to know about this. Ananias knew about it. These people know about it. And yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So here he's acting almost like an apologist. He's studied. He's had three days to think it through. This man would be steeped. Probably got most of the Old Testament memorized. And then once, once you've got it in your head, then of course it's, it's trying to connect all the dots and see where, what, it, what is significant in that Old Testament material. That would be the only Bible that he would have would be what we call the Hebrew or the Old Testament Scriptures. And he's able to pull these pieces together on the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe what we studied recently, uh, Moses saying that a prophet shall come to you and, and listen to him, and so on and so forth. And then, as he gathers his material, he shares it, and he proves something. Now, let's be very, very clear here that we're not to argue people into the kingdom. But when you read Paul's writings, most of his letters... Even though they are somewhat uh, emergency responses to, to sometimes very serious situations in churches like Galatia, he still builds his case. In other words, we're not just to go out and say, oh, Jesus loves you and leave it at that. We've got to show, we've got to prove why Jesus loves people. We've got to show that He died for them on the cross and He rose from them. We've got to show that their sins will separate them from God for eternity. And only in Christ can a person be made right with God. We have to prove our case. It's a very important part of Christian witnessing. And Paul did it through his whole ministry. And we need to learn how to do the same thing too. When I received my phone call asking about the Seventh-day Adventist um, some of the points that I brought up this gentleman could not answer them. And he concluded by saying, well you seem to kind of know what you're talking about. So I don't know how much I proved but I seem to learn, earn at least a little bit of credibility in those few moments on on the phone. And you're not trying to be the smart aleck. It's got nothing to do with that. But there is truth and there is error. And you and I need to know what the truth is and we need to know where the error is. And we need to in in a kind, compassionate way, but sometimes forcefully, Paul was often very forceful in the way he presented things. Um, he He had a strong case, as an attorney would say, Uh, And there's nothing wrong with that. There's an awful lot that is good. And reasoning from cause to effect. You see, in my discussion on the phone, some of the presuppositions, some of the assumptions of this individual were just not jiving with my understanding of Scripture. So if you make someone like Paul the sole authority, and we we don't have any respect for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... And where do the other epistles fit in, like the epistles of John and the book of Revelation? I mean, we need to have a broad, open view, a wide view of what Scripture says. And Scripture doesn't contradict itself. There, there is, there is, a, there is a, like a red thread that runs through all of Scripture that ties it together. And we need, need to be able to see that. And if we get to a point, as, as this gentleman seemed to be doing, When I was talking with him, where we leave the Old Testament and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just to the Jews, then what have we got left? Primarily Paul. And that was Brimsmead. Those of you who know uh, Brimsmead and his background, um, some of you, a few of you, will know what I'm talking about. That was his mistake to take the whole Bible and pour it through the eyes of Paul. That's not the way. Jesus is the final authority. And Paul is not in opposition to Jesus. He's just, in my opinion, Paul is is elaborating and expounding, expanding the message of Jesus. Jesus said there's some things I can't share with you now. Some things you'll have to learn later. Well, some of it they learn on His resurrection after His resurrection, where He was with them for 40 days. You remember that? But a lot of it is learned through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Nobody expanded the truth of Jesus as well as Paul did. And if Paul has a lot of negative things to say about the law of God, which he does, and that's why many churches are so against the law of God, and they blame it on Paul. But remember that Paul is dealing with crisis situations. And if somebody is taking the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and, and using them the wrong way, then what do you think Paul's going to do? He's going to give a very different emphasis. It's, it's a biblical emphasis. He, he will take the example of Abraham as being a man of faith, for example, rather than a man of works. Now James will take the same man and... and show how without works, faith is dead. Because he's dealing with a different audience than Paul was. So so these writers are dealing with different audiences, but there's one basic message and it's the message of Jesus. The message of God. And and for us as Seventh-day Adventists, the Bible should tie together like two gloves that just fit together on the hands. And to to get into dispensationalism and leave more than two-thirds of the Bible, the whole Old Testament, plus Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to the Jews, is crazy. And yet many believe that. So again, that's part of education and learning. And so this gentleman and I had had different presuppositions, and all I could hope for in, in a few minutes on the phone is that, a seed could be sown. Just as a seed was sown in Saul's mind. Do you think when he saw this godly man Stephen that he didn't have some doubts? I mean, what did Stephen do wrong? That he deserved to die? And what are these Christians doing so bad that they deserve to be executed too? So sure, this man had doubts. But then he would go to his leaders. He would go to his colleagues. He would go to men that he had great respect. And they would try and show, probably not from the Bible, but they would show that they're they're in opposition to Judaism. We don't know how God is going to bring each one of us to the Lord Jesus Christ, but by hook or by crook, He's going to try and do that, believe me. Anyway, here we see Paul preaching. People astonished. Paul growing stronger and stronger. That's the way it should be in our Christian life. We don't stay in diapers for long, do we? As we're baby Christians. Hopefully we get out of those pretty fast and we become young men and we become eventually mature people in the faith. That's what's needed today. Uh, one of the reasons why God doesn't bring more people into this church is because He doesn't have mature leadership here to take care of them. We need people to give Bible studies. We need people to mentor people. We need people to speak what is truth and, and point out what is error. We need people to become friends. We need people to lay hands on other people as Ananias did. And God will send the people. We saw that very clearly in Acts chapter 2. God added to the church such as should be saved. So when we're ready, He's ready. After many days had gone by, verse 23, the Jews conspired to kill Him. That's kind of interesting. Just saw the same thing with Stephen. If you can't, if you can't beat them in debate, if you can't show them where they're wrong in Scripture, then you just get rid of them. That's Satan's plan. That's his methodology. Force, coercion, persecution. But Saul learned of their plan, and day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night, lowered him in a basket, through an opening in the wall. So it didn't take very long for persecution to come to him. Now when it says in verse 23, after many days, some think this was as long as three years. So this ties into chapter 1 of Galatians. Probably he'd been in Arabia. Been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. Become very, very clear in his understanding about the role of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the clearer he got, the more they wanted to kill him. Something wrong with that, isn't there? The clearer we become should be the more that people want to buy in. But you know, people have a will. And if you're not going to surrender that will to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will surrender it to someone else. You'll either become a follower of Christ or an enemy of Christ. There is no one that's neutral. No one in this room this morning is neutral about Jesus Christ. You're all making choices, and that's the way it is. Jesus says, "Uh, I didn't come to, uh, I came to divide mother against child, father against child. Not that he wants to split families, but you know that when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and your family does not, that this tension that's there. Anyway, so down in the basket he goes and escapes. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Well, if anybody is going to give him the right hand of fellowship, surely it's the disciples and the leaders in Jerusalem. But they were all afraid of him. This is after at least three years not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, took him and brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul stayed with them, moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord, he talked and debated with the Grecian Jews. You remember I made that distinction because the book of Acts does between the, the Judaic Jews and the, the Grecian Jews. Well, here we have the Grecian Jews. These are the ones that Philip and Stephen appealed to, but they tried to kill him. And when the brothers learned all of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. This is beautiful, this verse. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. How many times have we seen the Holy Spirit mentioned in these first nine chapters? It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. When it says the fear of the Lord, it means in in respect, in awe of God. This is a great gift to have. That you love your Lord with with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind, and you respect Him. He is Creator. He created you, and He redeemed you. So shouldn't He have the best of us? And that's what we certainly will see uh, as we move our way through the book of Acts. We will see a man that is totally committed, dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, because of that, God did amazing things uh, through His ministry. Now, when we see such a dramatic, very miraculous conversion as this, how are we to respond to it? Maybe your experience was not a Damascus Road experience in that it wasn't as dramatic. But you know it was a Damascus Road experience. God had to convict you of sin, otherwise you would never have turned to a Savior. His Spirit had to be working every step of the way to convict you of sin. None of us wakes up in the morning and think, hey, it would be a neat thing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of my life. doesn't work that way. We flounder around. We try and figure out what life is about. We make our mistakes, which is called sin, in Scripture, some of us have made many of those, and then at some point in our life, God is going to try and get a hold of us and confront us with our situation. And it's not a pretty situation. We're outside of Christ, and we need to be saved. We need to be brought in to the family of God. And so when we get convicted of sin, hopefully we say, Lord, what do you want me to do? What a great response. Now, I don't fully know what's going on in his head when he says that, but on paper, it looks really, really good. He's probably confused. But I believe there was a surrender there. There was a submission there. This is Lord, and I am the creature. Here's the Creator, and I am the creature. And then as Jesus says, I will show you what you must do. And God did, because now He is brought in to the family of God. And it's a beautiful thing to be brought in the family of God. Whether you belong to a a church denomination or not, you are part of the worldwide family of God. And there wasn't all of these denominations at this point in time. That would come later. It was the church in Galatia, the church in Macedonia, the church here, the church there. All believing in the one Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank God for His mercy. We thank Him for His grace. And we thank Him that He is sovereign God. And He is roaming this earth. He's looking over this congregation here. And those of you that have been brought in to Christ's family, then He expects you to grow as Paul grew. Became a bold, powerful Christian. And those of you that are not in yet, you need to get in before you die in your sins. Some of you know that my wife works in a hospital. And she works at an important hospital in the Bay Area uh, and deals with, with gravely ill children. And there was a little boy who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and got a bullet in the brain. One years of age. And when Cecil came home, I'd heard about this on the news because a, a number of they, apparently there were six, possibly six gunmen, that just just uh, shot at this crowd of people, and uh, a number of people w- were shot, and this little boy was, was gravely ill. And she said he he probably won't make it. And I just heard yesterday that that he had died. And they've taken him off life support. Not a one of us, not a one of us in this room knows what the next 30 minutes holds. Right? Recently we've had people like Ted who have just passed away, boom, in their sleep. We just had Henry Juarez who's, who's passed away in the last last few days. None of us knows. What is there that's holding you back? Is there anything that makes sense to stop you coming to the Lord Jesus Christ? Why would anybody in their right mind want to carry their own sins? Isn't that a heavy burden? Let's lay them right now at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ as we pray. And let's ask Jesus, whether we understand what I'm going to say or not, let's ask Jesus to be Lord of our lives. To be number one. And to grow in Him, bearing much fruit to His honor and glory. Many believe that soon Jesus will return. He promised to do that. Some of us believe it will be soon. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank You that You can take this terrible enemy, Saul, and change his heart. Jesus says you must be born again. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Lord, we want to be in Your family. We want You to be Lord of our lives. We lay our sins at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank You, Lord, for convicting us of sin. So we feel our need for the Lord Jesus Christ and we commit our lives to Him. And Lord, we pray that Your Spirit will take full control. And that He will mold us and He will shape us a little bit here, a little bit there into the image of the lovely Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had blood on his hands, Lord, but you washed the blood away. And you covered it with the blood of Jesus Christ. Please do the same for us. And we thank You and we praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.